welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. recording takes place in the era of safe physical distancing. Our special guest today is Carlinda Dallamonte. Carlinda Dallamonte grew up in Amherstburg and has lived in the Windsor area most of her life. She now lives in Tecumseh, Ontario with her husband and one of her two daughters. She was head of English at Walkerville Collegiate Institute where she taught English and creative writing. Prior to her teaching career, she worked for CBC Television in Windsor, researching and writing for a current affairs program and for the University of Windsor where she wrote and produced instructional and promotional works in a variety of media. Delamonte has been writing poetry since she was 13. Her poetry has appeared in several anthologies and in Contemporary Verse 2 and the Windsor Review. She is the author of three collections of poetry, Now That We Know Who We Are, Other Living Things, and Morning Song, and she contributed several poems to the anthology because we have all lived here, poems along the South Shore. Welcome, Carlinda. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You've been writing poetry since you were 13. What got you interested in writing poetry? Well, I, it's sort of a, um, a dramatic uh, event in my life. I had a, a health issue and I was rushed to the hospital for some emergency surgery. And um, when I came out of it, um, there was this sudden new awareness of how beautiful life was. And I needed to express that somehow. And I was looking for my art form. I'd always been drawn to arts. but And so I picked up a pen and, uh, and I drafted my first poem. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, again, from my life experiences, I seem to be um, um, deeply affected and need to do something with them. And so writing and poetry is what I do with those experiences. So what was your first poem about? <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> it, was like, it was a little rhyming thing, but it was about life it was it was about life and all the beauty in life and all the joys that one can encounter <laughs> which, which i i was always a rather serious very somber kid and so this was a whole different side of me that just surfaced it was good it was good for me actually so how do you typically carve out time for your writing do you have a particular routine or a time of day that works best for you when you're not in COVID head brain like the rest of us? Yeah, right. Um, usually mornings, um, but I go in phases. I'll go sometimes months at a time where I'm just not writing much. Um, but when I'm writing, it's, it's early morning. That's, that's my time. I need quiet. Um, I need to just think. Um, Editing, I can do that at any time of the day. Well, not so late at night, but I can, I can do that. But the, the initial drafting has to be done early in the morning. So that's when I'm most effective. 
And I, I, you know, I'm like probably most writers. Um, I'd like to do it every morning, but I, I just don't have that much discipline, I guess. But I have gone periods of, say, eight months, a year, where I have uh, gotten up at four o'clock in the morning, even while I was teaching, and done a couple of hours of writing before I went into work. And so I look back at that, and, and I'm, I'm pleased that I was able to discipline myself to that extent. That's really impressive. Wow. I don't do it now. <laughs> well, no, I, don't, I don't have to now. I mean, now I can get up at six and do the same thing, six or seven. Um, but at that time, that was it with two girls and, you know, a home and a full-time job. And four o'clock in the morning was the time, yeah, to carve out time for writing. Unfortunately, that's what writers often have to do because we need our day jobs to pay the bills, right? So we very often have to um, carve out those times before and after where, wherever we can. And that's what I was doing. So your work has appeared in many anthologies and journals, but all of your poetry collections have been published by Black Moss Press. What is it about Black Moss Press that's made you want to continue that relationship for years? Well, I have a good relationship with a publisher, uh, Marty Gervais. Uh, he's a good man, and he did uh, encourage me. Um, um, after the death of my mother, sort of, sort of to, to back up a bit, um, to my first book, um, I, that was another extremely um, powerful event in my life, and I needed to do something with that. And that was, again, when I turned to poetry, but as an adult, as a, I was in my 40s at that time. And Marty was so supportive um, uh, I called him and I ran some things by him. He was very positive. And I guess I, I, I have a sense of loyalty. Um, I'm a very loyal person when people are good to me. And I, I, I like to be around people who are good. And I think he's a good man. I think he does good things in the community. And he was certainly good to me. So I've stayed with him. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't pursue other publishers to... But, yeah, I would have to say that that's why I've stayed with him. So from your first collection of poetry released in 2004 to the work you're producing now, how would you say you've evolved as a poet? That's a good question. Um, I know that I've grown as a poet. I think that um, I'm doing, I know I'm doing things that I would not have been able to do. Uh, 20 years ago, 16 years ago. Um, I'm using language in ways that I, I might not have had the courage to uh, explore back then. Uh, although I, I mean, I was an English teacher, confident in the language and so on. Uh, however, um, as you know, in terms of expressing myself and, and writing poetry and, and, and creating the art form, um, it has been an evolution. Um, and I think my last, my third book, I think comparing my first and my third book, I can see some distinct differences, particularly in terms of language, in terms of line, the way I'm using line lengths, um, the imagery. You know, although some, 
think one or two of my best poems are in that first collection, I think. But um, at the same time, um, I think I found ways to express more complex ideas with language as I evolved as a writer. And I do like to explore complex ideas, but they can be difficult in poetry because you don't want to get too, uh, you don't want, you, you know, you need to just stay focused. You need to keep it clean and, and um, direct. So uh, going into your debut poetry collection, now that we know who we are, it was a beautiful exploration of your process of growing up and becoming a writer as mm. a child of Italian immigrants. How, um, how was it for you to decide which memories and experiences to include or not to include? Was it hard or did it come evolve quite easily? The main thing is that certain memories are, are very dominant. And I think that's probably true of most of us, that when we look back, certain things just really stand out in our, in our childhood. And those are, of course, the things that I focused on, the things that um, I guess uh, elicited great joy and great pain in my life. And um, uh, it wasn't really difficult. I mean, I had thought about things a lot. I had talked to, about my, my life. I had talked about these events, uh, sorted through a lot of the um, disappointments. Um, however, it was a whole thing, different thing approaching them as poetry. But still, they were events that I had already explored in a number of ways. And so, no, it wasn't really difficult to come up with um, the subject matter. Um, I, think, I think that it was just, it came naturally, that came very naturally to me. Other Living Things, published in 2009, also focused primarily on poems about growing up, but yeah. maybe not so autobiographical. So there was a greater emphasis on social challenges, such as domestic uh -huh. abuse and child abuse, mm -hmm. and the violence of school kids. What inspired you to create that collection? I think that I've always been really conscious of the fact that we carry um, those events of childhood with us for so long. Uh, we, we expend so much energy working through those events. Um, it just seems such a shame. It just, um, I saw it, I experienced it myself, but I saw it in my students, of course. Um, and, and, and it's always, you know, it, it's always been my thought that God, if we could just reduce those tragic events, especially in those first 15 years, which are so formative, which are so powerful in our lives, um, if we could just reduce the pain uh, of those years, I think that we'd all be better off. I think we, we'd have other things to spend, to expend our energy on too. Um, and, and it just seemed, it just seems, it seems like a really important thing, probably the most important thing for me, um, especially in dealing with kids because in English, uh, Yes, we're teaching language, we're teaching literature. However, you're also, you're really getting to know kids inside and out. And it's amazing the things they reveal in their writing. And so, and, I, and I'm a very em empathetic person, I think. So I, I think I, I took these things to heart. And I, um, 
I regretted, I, I, I very much regretted that there was so much pain in the world. I just wanted um, to end it. And I, and I think that maybe by writing about it, by saying, look, this happens, um, let's stop doing it. You know, um, that would be the end result of my writing, I hope, is that people would just say, yeah, this is what happens. Let's, it's not worth it. Let's, let's put an end to this. Uh, so, so I think it was probably my attempt at some kind of social change, maybe, you know, and just to inspire people to be more conscious of dealing with young people and how much of an impact, even as a teacher, it often surprised me how the things I could say could be misinterpreted by a student and could hurt them. And then I'd feel so badly. And I'm sure this is the case with all, you know, all teachers. I was a kind teacher, don't get me wrong. However, um, just, um, you just don't know what triggers people have. And we, have, we make mistakes. And so, you know, I saw the mistakes that I made as well. I didn't, I didn't want to make those um, any more than, than I guess I had to, you know. So your 2018 collection, Morning Song, was once again very much rooted in family. It was an exploration of the period of time around the death of your sister. Was the process of writing that book different from your other previous writing projects? Well, it was, uh, it was highly focused on a nine-month period, right? Um, the, the, the period of time uh, from which my sister um, uh, was uh, diagnosed to the time she died and and even after that so i'd say probably a 12 um maybe 18 month period so in that sense yes it was very focused it was also interesting too because i didn't do any of that writing during that time i did it all after the fact i needed to step away from it and those were largely the mornings when i got up i was still working i got up at four and worked through these things. And I think if you read the book, you'll notice there are a lot of references to the night, to the, to the morning coming. And of course it is called morning song. So um, while I was doing it, I didn't see the entire shape of it. It was, it was done in sort of just bits. And, um, but then I did see that it was, it was very much a sort of working through the night uh, to, to the point where um, you know, the sun rises and there's hope again. So, yeah, that was, uh, that, it was um, different in that way. Um, it was also different because I had a really interesting relationship with um, uh, Tim Struthers, who teaches um, English at the University of Guelph, was kind enough to agree to edit my poems as I wrote them. And so, we had an arrangement where I would send him a poem each week and he would send it back to me with comments and I learned so much from him. So that was a really special um, experience. And I, I'm sure the poetry is much better uh, for that reason. So um, reaching out, uh, eight of your poems were included in the 2017th anthology because we have all lived here. Um, the poems along the South Shore, and that was edited by John B. Lee, and mm -hmm. there, were, you, there were seven poets, right, mm -hmm. all writing about Windsor. So how did you go about selecting the people and places 
uh, you would address. Was that your decision or something that the editor came up with and or the publisher? The publisher came up with the areas and assigned the areas. And mine was just a Windsor. I was just given, uh, so I, I, I read that as downtown Windsor. Um, other people had Riverside, others had South Windsor, um, the West End. Uh, I was given Windsor, so um, my poems tend to focus on that area. But I also felt that I could pretty much go anywhere <laughs> if I wanted to. Uh, and in some cases, I probably did. So yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much how we, we divided that. That was a really nice experience too. It was so good to work with the other poets in the community. Um, I, I treasure those, those meetings we had. They were, they were special. They were really, really good. It's just, I love, I love getting together with other poets in that atmosphere of uh, workshopping. Um, so that process of collaboration is mm. very, must be very unique, very different from the 4 a.m. Um, yes. Contemplations. Yeah. On, on the other hand, though, I did that a lot in my creative writing courses. So I was quite familiar with the whole workshopping um, process. But, but to experience it at my end with my peers was, was very, very nice. <laughs> something different. Something different, yeah. Yeah, so the title is shared of the, the anthology is shared with one of your poems. Do you remember how that came about in the process? Uh, who was, who suggested it? I think it was John B. Lee who suggested the title, the, uh, the title of the poem. Um, and there was a bit of back and forth on that. And, and they, there was some thought that perhaps I should then change the title of my poem. Yeah, well, I didn't want to, I'm not sure he was the one to suggest that. I'm not saying that, but it, it did come up that perhaps I could change the title of my poem. And I didn't really want to. And I, you know, I did express my concerns about that. And, um, and they, they came around. So there was a, a slight change made to it. Uh, because the title of my poem is Because We Have Lived Here. And, and they changed it to Because We Have All Lived Here. I don't know what the thinking was. Um, I was pleased that they liked the title, though. I was very pleased they liked the title. And, I, and I'm, I'm sure that in the end, all was well. And everyone was very happy. So we, it was just a little glitch at the beginning. But these things happen, you know, and you work them out. I, it's a good title. <laughs> yeah. And I like that poem too. That, that, that particular poem. It's, a, it's one that a lot of people can uh, relate to, I think, in the city. The favorite of mine too. Uh, so, Carlina, you've read at literary festivals and events all over Ontario, Toronto, Hamilton, London. Yeah. I even went up to Ottawa. Uh, but, but you've also read your poetry at Shakespeare and Company in Paris. <laughs> yes, I Tell have. It's about that, please. Yeah, oh, gosh, that was a special thing. I didn't think you'd ask about that. Um, yeah, well, see, that summer, um, I went to France with a group of writers. Um, uh, we did a sort of retreat. And um, one of the events that was organized for us, again, by my publisher, um, was this reading at Shakespeare and Company. And it was just fantastic. It was such a good good audience 
it was a small store, so many books, but every, there were people on the floor, there were people standing along the walls, and you like that for a, a reading, that's what you want. You don't want a large space with, with 20 people seats, you know, sparsely <laughs> seated in the audience. You, you want a cozy environment, you want lots of books there, and you want lots of, you want that feeling that you're really connecting with people, and I, I really had that um, uh, when I uh, when I read there, it was really nice, and I and I remember one gentleman coming up to me afterwards and talking to me about my poetry. I just felt so I felt like a poet, you know. I felt like the real thing because so often I feel like an imposter. Let's face it, you know. I think, come on, are you, are you really a poet? I don't know. Um, but in that moment, I felt like a poet, and it felt so good, and it felt it felt good to have reached someone uh, in that way. That's amazing. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, Carlinda, what's your next project? Well, my next project is a series of poems um, directed to Shakespearean characters. Um, I, I think Shakespeare was probably, has always been one of the largest um, um, influences in my life. I don't know. I, I can't explain it because I didn't, you know, growing up, I didn't have, in an immigrant family, you know, we, we didn't read Shakespeare. We didn't go to plays. It was, a, it, you know, you can imagine um, there wasn't a lot of that going on. However, um, when I went to high school and we first studied Romeo and Juliet, something like something just, boom, exploded in me. And I just, I just loved it. I loved the language, and I was, uh, and from that moment on, I, I just wanted more and more Shakespeare. And so, I, I enjoyed teaching English. I enjoyed, of course, teaching Shakespeare. Um, and so, I, I think what I've always wanted to do, and this is something I've been thinking about for a long time, is um, address some of these characters that I've, I've, I've felt very, very close to over the years. Um, and I've, I felt I wanted to say things to them. Now, I, sometimes I feel I'm being a little too preachy in the poems. <laughs> Maybe I am. Um, but uh, uh, I, I need to scale that back. <laughs> the, the work isn't published yet, so there's still hope for, <laughs> for repairing that part of it. Um, but uh, I, I just think there's so much material there. I could, I mean, I could probably spend the next 20 years doing it, but at some point I'll stop and I'll just say, you know, this is, this is, uh, that'll be enough. Um, and I'm not sure if I should be exploring too many of the more um, obscure, um, the less well-known characters. I, I think it's probably best to stick to the those that are most familiar. Although what I've tried to do with the poems is also um, is make them accessible to people who aren't familiar with Shakespeare, and that's a huge challenge. So if you know the plays, you're going to read a certain um, story, a certain line of, of meaning there. Um, if you don't know the plays, I think there's still meaning for you. You know, and, and, and I think they can still work. At least that's what I'm trying for. And that's a challenge. It's a, it's a, 
it's a it's good to have a challenge though especially in retirement it's a really good thing to keep your mind and heart and soul occupied well we're all really looking forward to that project especially your three weird sisters poem i know that oh, like- <laughs> i i can't wait yeah <laughs> i can't wait to have that one out <laughs> carlinda domonte would you like to read something for us well, let me, um, I haven't read this one, but it's uh, to, uh, not to an audience. Um, it's actually the light in the window, which is the last in this book here. Um, and it was inspired by um, Virginia Woolf's um, The Mark on the Wall, which was her first published short story. Um, sort of loosely inspired by it, not, you know. But anyway, I do give her some credit there. Um, it's called The Light in the Window, and it's the last one in the, in the collection. Probably a little different from many of the others. But anyway, here we go. Uh, the Light in the Window. This morning, big breaths aimed deep, exhaled hard. Don't chase the pain. Stay on top of it. I'm on top of it. What is that ruby streak marking the window, the fractured light of a street lamp or a tired foot resting on a brake pedal? Or does it emanate from inside this room? Lamplight bouncing, scratching the window pane. Don't chase the pain, they told her. Plan for it. And she asked, have I done this to myself? Have I been cruel? Is this my life now? Drinking concentrated dandelion juice, alkaline water. They say, I don't know, it's worth a try. How am I supposed to stay ahead of this much pain? Uh, Percocet. Of the new words she taught me that year, debulking was the worst. Debulking, surgical removal of all visible tumors a futile fishing expedition. They did it twice, and two six-round stints of six-hour poison drips. We can try another, they said. No, no more. For two months, we pretended it was over and it was only healing and hope. We lived minutes, her eating shrimp and wafers, me foraging for new foods to try next. Why won't he give me an ileostomy? I'll find someone who will, she said, and she did. They told me she would starve to death, but I never repeated it and she never asked. She called herself an avatar, laughed, chased more pain. What is that light that marks the window pane like an open wound? Do you believe in reincarnation, she asked. I don't know. When she quit chasing the pain and said no more to the draining of fluids, no more blades, no more water, she wanted to be alone. Why compound the shame? Why have others watch? But we all do this, I said. There's no shame in it. No answer. She had stopped listening too. A last breath and death her skin melting from bones. When I asked her son, he said, I'll be okay, I can do this. 
and we fell into our own private aching and for a long time fled darkness. The sun's first rays have met the window, unobscuring shapes and colors on the other side, defining edges, adding depth, waking the sky, unmasking the earth, staging a background for blades of brass rippling and fading the red fragment of light that marked its pain. So that's, I don't know, kind of sad, I guess. Um, I'll read one from my first book, which I, my, um, growing up in an immigrant family and um, my parents not speaking English, we found ourselves often being the, uh, those who were playing the interpreter in sometimes very serious situations. And this poem was about, um, uh, a situation in which I was, I was then, I was the, the vulnerable one. I, uh, we returned to Italy in 1979. My mother had not been back. She came in 55. And as soon as I could, I said, Mom, let's go. And we did. Um, but wow, the roles were reversed. So anyway, this is Trading Places with Mama, Italy, 1979. As we descended, your face became confident, determined, proud as I had never seen it. And on the ground, you held the reins aptly as I fumbled with words and luggage. After 25 years and weeks of rehearsing this reunion, we waited, waited as crowds thinned and no one came. Deflated, I wanted a hotel in Rome. You ordered a cab to track down your family. Neighbors said, yes, we were expected. Wrong airport, perhaps. They must be waiting in Penna Piedimonte, the tiny mountain village where you were born. While I wanted to surrender myself to a night at the Holiday Inn, you ordered the driver to take us across the country. Pay him and let's go, you commanded. And for me, this really was a foreign country. Our driver's unannounced stop at a phone booth, running red lights, rattling lane changes, and you turn on a six lane road, then swapping cars on the shoulder and we were headed for the mountains in a Mercedes Benz. All the way you sat up front, directing the passage through peaks around crests and banks and thinning air with a young girl's memory and 25 years of changes. Seven hours later, the right piazza, <laughs> the whole town waiting, crowds and cries of Zia Elda, Zia Elda. We were taken by hands I'd never known. For the first time, I really was your daughter. And that was a very powerful experience for me. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really cool. <laughs> Here's oh, oh, you know, I, I was thinking I'd like to do one for my daughter. Uh, this is one I wrote. For my daughter and it appeared in uh, the banister uh, last year and it is actually called lines for my daughter <clears throat> know as you move through seasons and your hair falls gray on your ears that somewhere there will always be white blooming coating the gardens we've planted in sacred places behind the house or under the pearl white of the moon's watch, 
And when you find what you are, know that you are everything. And let the song in your feet tap sidewalks, pathways, stairs that beckon and sink deep into the white of your bones, into the light of the place where you first opened your eyes, into the goodness of the first pure breath that filled your lungs, and know that you are everything and can love everything you are. So there's another. Linda Dalamonte, that was wonderful. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.